Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have a very interesting conversation to share with you. I just had the opportunity to speak with a man named Ben Wolf. Ben is an entrepreneur and author. Uh, he wrote a book called Fractional Leadership, Landing Executive Talent You Thought Was Out of Reach. Uh, I definitely recommend it, especially after this conversation. There was a lot that I reviewed with Ben. We talked about sort of the, the new emerging landscape of work and what it means to be a fractional uh, executive or a fractional member of a team and different growth strategies for startups, as well as ways to you know, filter out the best talent using you know, mindset and core values and stuff like that. It was a very interesting conversation. After hearing about Ben's business, I am very bought in and very interested to see sort of where this idea will go, where it will take him. Uh, and overall, I got a lot of great bits of information out of this conversation, and I'm sure you will as well. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Ben Wolf. Hey, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. For the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind telling them a little bit about your background and, and where you're coming from and how you got to this point? Sure. Diving right in. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ben Wolf, right in. Originally, from, originally from Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, you know, grew up there. Had a few lives in between and, and, and somewhat recently actually went into corporate restructuring and bankruptcy law at a firm in New York City, after which joined a healthcare startup, first full-time employee, just together with the founder, like a young guy, a lot younger than me, called me dad, actually, and, uh, and joined this company and had the opportunity to build most of the operations there. It's a very tech-focused, very mission-driven startup, and by the time... I mean, built most operations at that company, never done it before, kind of had to learn on the job, figure it out as we went. And uh, we, by the time we, I left there, it was over the, it was over 130 people at that time and, and over uh, in the largest healthcare organization of its type in the entire state of New York. So like we had very, very fast growth. Uh, we used a concept called EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, as like a management framework to kind of put rails on the thing and, and, and stay focused and be clear on our priorities and who we were so that things didn't fall apart when we did grow quickly. And uh, so after leaving there, I, I hung up my shingle as like a fractional, meaning like a part-time chief operating officer for multiple companies at the same time. And just, I started a podcast called Win-Win Entrepreneurial Community. And just through the podcast, through the entrepreneurial operating system, EOS world, through just through other fractional leaders, fractional COOs, I just talked to so many people um, and realized that there's actually thousands of people doing this. It's firms, solo practice, you know, made up of dozens, if not over a hundred people each. There's solo practitioners that are 
fractional, meaning part-time COOs in marketing, uh, you know, COOs, CMOs, CSOs, marketing, sales, operations, finance, technology. And there's just thousands of people doing this. Everything's all over the place. It's a big, it's a big mix. And, uh, and so I just realized that there was a complete lack of like centralization, knowledge. There's no center of gravity in this whole industry. I saw there was a gap there, so I decided to fill it. And, uh, and so I wrote this book, Fractional Leadership, Landing Executive Talent You Thought Was Out of Reach. I started a site, fractionalleadership.io, which builds a bench of vetted fractional executives, fractional leaders, uh, and then has a process for referring those to businesses, whoever's a good fit for that business, uh, to take the whole mystery out of it and have people stop having to kiss frogs and to make it easier to find the right people started a blog, podcast, and everything else. So uh, I'll just kind of fill that gap uh, that, that existed in this industry before. Now, uh, I want to take it back a few steps to yeah. sort of where, you know, because to me, a very interesting point to hone in on here is that very early uh, experience you had working with the founder directly to build a company from basically, you know, nothing into something. And you said that you had no experience doing that previously. What was your mindset going into that endeavor? You said that you also lived a few lifetimes before that. So sort of like with your combined experience up until then, what made you decide to take on that kind of challenge? Uh, well, it was a little bit of a bait and switch, honestly. Um, the, <laughs> the, uh, it came in there. I had a legal background. I mean, I don't know if, you, if you're interested in the story, it's, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Actually, after the law firm, just being, you know, being vulnerable here for a second, I was actually laid off from the law firm after five years. Uh, the bankruptcy department had been slow for about two years before that. I particularly had low billable hours, if you're familiar with the legal world mm-hmm. and how important that is. So um, I, I, I was kind of laid off along with a few other people. And I experienced five months unemployed. You know, and it might help people actually to just have people that actually talk about that and, and not have shame about it. Totally. And I had five months unemployed during that time. At first I was just looking at, I mean, I was like, I was looking even before I left the, the firm, but it didn't work out before I left and applied it. Uh, you know, a lot of, se- you know, what we call second tier firms in different places where I applied in private companies in the legal space. And I don't know, wasn't necessarily going, like, I wasn't sure 100%, like, you know, is this going to work out? I continued that process, but I thought, what are my skills? What are my talents? Like what, you know, I did a Clifton Strengths Finder analysis. Like I did a, you know, assessments. I tried to figure out like, what do I like doing? What am I good at? You know, I have monetary needs also. Like I have a wife and kids. Like what could I do that potentially could make money and also is what I like to do and what with my background, I could at least conceivably get a job as. Mm-hmm. So I, after that process and that analysis, I ended up, thinking, you know what, what if I would run a nonprofit? Like I could like make things happen, do things. Legal background, I did have some experience working at, at nonprofit organizations and educational ins- institutions previously before the law firm. So, you know, what if I went that route? So I, I looked into, you know, I, I tried doing that. I applied for, you know, uh, executive director of regional offices of various nonprofits or is running entire nonprofits. And a bunch of meetings and interviews along those lines. And one of them, I, I met this guy 
uh, Yoel Gabay, the company was ended up being Freedom Care, but the, he he had a nonprofit that he started. And I'll, I interview with him, potentially running it. He didn't end up hiring anybody, and uh, about two about two months, two or three months after that, we had like a two hour lunch, and like you know, and then that was it. Um, and about two months later, he like texts me, "Hey Ben, have you ever built a Medicaid compliance program?" So I haven't. So of course I said, well, certainly I, you know, I, no, I didn't exactly. I just, you know, said, well, you know, I've, I've built a HIPAA compliance program in my law firm and like I did yep. bankruptcies at different hospitals and came in contact with all, whatever, whatever the relevant things were. It's like, but exactly doing a Medicaid compliance program, I haven't done, but I'm a quick study. And you, know, you just say the kind of nice things that you need to say and that's sure. kind of truthful, but you say what you say in that situation. You can figure it out. Truthful. And then we, you know, so he's like, okay, it was like it was on a Sunday. Like, it's like, all right, we got on the phone, interviewed with this recruiter he was working with on Tuesday, found out afterwards he recommended he not hire me, but by Thursday he made me an offer. And so the, the idea was, you know, you build a compliance program. He wanted like a lawyer, you need, you need strong compliance. So in his mind, because he's like this genius visionary, I mean, nobody thinks this way, but he was like, well, you want a very compliant business. So who better to build the compliant business than somebody who knows compliance, a lawyer, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I, you know, I certainly would not think that way today. Like, you know, a lawyer to build operations at a business, a business that actually works, not necessarily the most obvious choice, but I guess he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself or would not even see in others even today necessarily, but he has a very strong gut, you know, and he saw sure. something there and he's like, you know, so, you know, we at this meeting where he gives me the offer, he's like, all right, build this compliance program. What I need you to do is build these two departments out of the three departments that are very compliance heavy. I'm like, okay, building departments at a company, okay, very different from legal, like completely different. Right? Whatever. I was like, you know what? Give it a shot. So I gave it a shot. And thank God we went, I mean, we went to the, it wasn't instant, but we went to the moon. It was a huge growth. Uh, it was a huge, huge learning experience for me. Like I was there, like I was the first full-time employee. We had zero revenue. We hadn't even launched when I joined. He done a little bit of the setup before that, um, but it was a crazy learning experience. I mean, I was there from zero, you know, from like zero revenue to, you know, to one person, to five people, to 50 people, to over a hundred people, moving offices, which I ran like five times. I got involved in lobbying and I mean, and, you know, and, and legal and operations and sales and marketing and CRMs and, you know, working with developers and building tech yes. systems and apps. Like I just had to learn everything because none of us had done it before. So we just had to figure it out. It's like a classic startup, basically. Yes. And that is the beauty of the startup is, you know, you can go into it with one set of skills and come out of it, you know, understanding this entire ecosystem of, yeah. of how a business has to operate and all the different pieces and how they have to fit together. Um, and, you know, I actually have had a similar experience. Uh, you know, my company, I, we, I started a solar company back in 2019 and we started as, you know, basically nothing and uh, grew it as a sales organization besides before deciding like, Hey, let's start a construction company and do the installs ourselves uh, wow. with no 
knowledge of how to start a construction company. So I'm sort of <laughs> with you on that challenge yeah. of just diving in and figuring out, you know, okay, here's how you start to organize people and put them to work and build roles, build positions and work with the rest of the team and, and start working towards, you know, hitting the growth metrics. Now for you, right. I think, uh, one thing that's interesting is there's a lot more stakes at hand, wife and kids and, and, yeah. you know, uh, you know, so diving in, it's really everything, you know, has to get done. Um, where was, was there any points where, you know, you were considering quitting or, uh, you know, there was, it was just like, you know, racking your head against the wall. Like this is impossible. Well, look at the startup. I mean, at the startup I had, I had a salary, like he was funding it. So I, I had a, I had a salary. So that wasn't the issue. I guess where that came into, I guess where it got challenging we go. I'll tell another vulnerable story now since sure. we're telling, telling stories. <laughs> uh, so it'll be just between me and you, Patrick, just promise. Absolutely. That. Yeah. I won't share it on the podcast. <laughs> the, uh, the, um, uh, is, is that when I left that, so I left that company that I just mentioned freedom care because we had gotten, you know, we'd gotten to a good place. And I just, I guess felt like I wasn't contributing enough anymore. Like it was great in growth mode and building mode. And then we kind of got, like I said, we're over 130 people by that point. It's a big organization by that stage. And like, I'm like maintaining, I'm tweaking, you know, I just wasn't feeling it anymore. Like I wasn't contributing like I wanted to. So I started looking at other, other options and I joined, I won't say the name of the company, but I joined, a, I joined, became a COO at, an, at another healthcare company and ended up being, um, uh, I knew about the business challenges that they had, but after, it was only after I started that I realized there were some management dynamics that, uh, uh, let's just say, weren't um, weren't overcomeable. Like there was just there was at a certain point I tried a lot of things. There was just a certain point there was nothing I could do. It wasn't going to be a dynamic in which I could succeed or which the business could succeed. So rather than oversee, I was under tremendous amount of stress. Like wanting to do a good job, but feeling like my hands were tied and I couldn't. So um, I actually ended up resigning after two months under a tremendous, tremendous amount of personal stress uh, because I, I don't want to fail at anything. I don't want to sure. let anybody down. And, uh, and so I kind of started this fractional COO business, uh, you know, kind of under duress, not duress, but like no, not the right. That's not the right word, but it was under a huge time crunch. Sure. I ended up being able to do some consulting work for my old company that they desperately needed. And so I was able in my off hours to make, uh, even while I was at the first co- at the company I left for actually made a pretty good, pretty good amount of money um, that was able to create kind of a bridge, uh, you know, that I wasn't starting from scratch. So I just started, you know, I just started building, doing crazy business development. I mean, I could talk if your listeners want about, you know, hey, when you're a solo partner, because I was a solo, now I have a firm and a couple of businesses. But at the time I was a solo practitioner, solopreneur, uh, selling myself as a fractional COO, sort of like a consultant, but you know, it's different kind of consulting. Yeah. And I don't know if people want to hear about that sort of thing, but, uh, you know, you have to set metrics, set goal, like whatever you have to. If you want to build a business, even if you're the business, you know, you need to take a systematic approach to it. 
um, and you know, create accountability and discipline and, 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 and act based on measurables uh, and not based on hope. Uh, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's critical. Yeah. No, I, I love that. I think that's uh, super essential, especially, you know, uh, even if you don't have, you know, a corporate background or experience or anything like that, if you want to get uh, yourself in a better position in life and you want to be sort of be able to contribute more value to the marketplace or have, you know, sort of a more established reason to do anything, uh, you have to take your life seriously in the way, like treat yourself like a business. And like you said, you know, it's, uh, I think it's actually harder than when you're surrounded by other people or other founders is when you're doing it alone, because there's no one, you're your accountability partner. You're the person that is driving your own standards. You have to, uh, you know, really design your life and uh, think about your life as if it's a business. And I encourage, you know, really all young people to do that early on because, you know, you don't have track record, you don't have experience, but if you can be disciplined and hold yourself accountable to certain goals and metrics that you want to hit for yourself. And those don't have to necessarily be like business goals, but it could be like, you know, if you're trying to save money to invest in something, if you're trying to uh, reach certain like fitness levels or, you know, uh, consume a certain amount of content or whatever, like holding yourself to those standards so that, you know, when you do find yourself in a position to work with a company or work with a bunch of other people in a startup or, an existing business that, you know, you sort of have that you, the discipline can speak for itself and you can be a valuable member of that, uh, that community or system, uh, and, you know, just kind of ride from there. It's building yourself, building the value within yourself and holding those standards. I'm, uh, one thing that also strikes me, which is interesting is just the nature of organizations and work these days, which I think, you know, you're sort of, a, uh, uh, an example of this sort of changing dynamic in the corporate workspace, which I think many people don't have much of a concept of where when you look back like 50 or more years, uh, really to the, you know, kind of what would our parents, grandparents be doing for work? You know, there was sort of, uh, when you work for a large organization, you know, get in there, work through the corporate ranks, you know, retire with a Rolex or whatever, uh, you know, kind of that generic climbing your way through business. Whereas, uh, you know, sort of as the evolution of the internet and knowledge work has, you know, really bloomed and, and expanded, people are not, you, you're not just working for one company for your entire life. You're developing a skill set that you can apply to different organizations at different points. And I think that's a lot of what, you know, sort of I gather just from the concept of fractional leadership is, that there is, uh, it, it's much more dynamic and fluid than it's ever been to be able to take your skill set and plug into another organization and be able to start to fill those needs. And that can go for being a COO, it can go for being, you know, creative director or marketer or, you know, sales director or whatever. Could you touch on how you started to see sort of those patterns emerging in sort of just the corporate world and, and you know, how you're able to, you know, fit fit the new model, fit the new world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely see, I definitely see, you know, fractional work at the executive level and, and below it as well. I mean, definitely exploding, obviously, as you're alluding to see the same thing. I kind of chalk it up to three main factors, um, which I, I do talk about this in the book also, but, you know, I think one is, one is just that the technology tools have developed beyond a certain point, right? I think that, I, you know, I, I comment that if 
COVID had happened 20 years earlier, right? That we would not have seen the same, even though there was internet and, you know, Skype probably 20 years ago, but like, we would not have seen the same, we would not have seen the same uh, migration to people going fractional and going independent the way we are today uh, after people got a taste of it. And, you know, just kind of like the great resignation that everybody's talking about these days. And, you know, I don't think you would see that to that extent when the tools were a lot harder to use, you know, I just think with zoom and Asana and Slack and Monday and, and all the rest that, that the, it just got so much easier that that's one factor I think that's relevant. And obviously the second factor is COVID, right. Which is that, which is that people I'm talking about the business owner side now too, that they, people who could not imagine not working in person, um, you know, I, again, I was started this fractional COO business before COVID. And if you talk to people where it was going to be a virtual engagement, unless they already had a virtual team, a virtual leadership team, um, people were not, most people are just not open to that. They're like, how can you have with the leadership team and you're not in the same room and you can't look at each other eye to eye and stand on the carpet and talk? What, like, how could that ever work? They just can't even, can't even get their head around it. And we would never try it. In fact, even to freedom care, I tried to push because I was all I was in charge of all the office moves. So like every like six nine months, we're always like expanding, moving furniture, build outs. Like I was dealing with because we we're expanding so quickly and everything was in person. So you know we're like like once or twice a year we ran out of space. So we I had to like have a constant churn of space. I was like saying like hey maybe we could have a certain portion of the workforce like work from home or maybe we could try. And they're like, no, 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 it'll never, you know, it'll never work. We can't, we can't do it. And, uh, you know, and then now, you know, March, 2020, everybody had to work remotely, including at the executive level for two or three months, at least, if not more. So the, uh, so people just, you know, some realized, okay, we did it while we had to, and we hate it and we're never going to do it again if we can help it. Um, but many realized, okay, it wasn't that, like, it wasn't what I, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Reality was not as bad as I expected. And this is actually doable. And you know what? If I could find the right person for this business and the right person who I like and who I want to work with, what is the statistical likelihood that that best person happens to live within 10 miles of my corporate office or my home office? Like out of a 3,000 foot wide country, even just looking at America alone, like it's, you know, statistically speaking, it's much more likely for you to find the person somewhere else. So, you know, so people once... For, the, for that portion of people who found that they could be open to it and it wasn't that bad or they didn't mind, uh, I think that 20, 30, 40% of businesses who would have never considered somebody working virtually before uh, are now considering. Now that could be full-time, but it, could also be, but it also opens you up. And if you're, if you're open for fractional, which is a separate subject, like why do people do that and why is that a solution, which we didn't get to yet, but whether it's virtual or full-time or fractional, people get more open-minded to it because of COVID. And the truth is, I think that COVID, it's not, it's not substantively different than, let's say, the 2008 recession or whatever. But it just puts more pressure on people, just makes in the, the, the rioting, everything that's going on in the country just makes people feel insecure. And you don't want to commit. If you need an experience you know, let's talk about fractional leadership, right? If you, if you needed a, an experience, someone who's done product, ro- you know, someone who's done product rollouts at a hundred percent company before, 
and you know, then you, you, you know, that C, that, that CMO full time is going to cost you $250,000. And that's a, that's a huge, huge pill to swallow. And it's very, very hard to make that leap to take on that risk. Uh, you know, if something happens and you already took on a full-time person, you don't want to let them go or what if it doesn't work. And so just the economic insecurity and, and makes people more, more looking for something that's more bite-sized. Yeah. So, so if people can, you know, that's where and fractional leadership comes in that if I can get CMO that's done this before, I can't afford somebody 300,000 full-time. Maybe I don't even need somebody full-time with that level of experience because other people are going to be doing the tactical work. Uh, so we get somebody, a CMO, like an experienced CMO who's done this 10 times before for less than 50% of what I could, you know, would have to pay somebody full time. And they're there for one or two days a week uh, with us, part of our leadership team, leading, leading everything and managing either internal or external resources for the marketing activities to take that example, then it's a great deal. It's less risk. It's a faster, it's a faster to get going. And, uh, and, and it costs less and you're still getting 80% of the benefit you'd be getting from somebody full-time anyway. Um, so I think, I think it was a little bit tangential in your original question there, but it was, it was uh, COVID, the, what do we say here? COVID, the, uh, the technological increases, technological increase and, 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 uh, and, and financial pressure. So I, and I would say that those three things coming together uh, is just, causing this explosion that we're seeing today and the number of people who are interested in potentially utilizing fractional executives and other kinds of fractional workers as well. And by the same token, it's people having to work from home for a while. Uh, It just makes people like, you know, everybody, even full-time people that just work from home, you need flexibility. We want hybrid. Everybody wants more flexibility. And so those people who are willing to swallow the hard pill of, of the risk of going out on your own, which we talked about before, then they could potentially, you know, I just think more people who, who, who might be willing to accept that risk, or maybe they do a side hustle. And then when they get their second client as a side hustle, then they quit and they switch to, you know, going on their own. Um, but it just, I think more people are just going fractional. I think that's really the third or fourth, however you want to look at it, factor. It's yeah. making this more prevalent. The more people are becoming available to actually do this with. I mean, I would say definitely, I, I would agree more people are going fractional, but I would also add that I think uh, you have to go fractional in 2021. Like I, I don't really see, or, you know, there's uh, much more opportunity to be dynamic like that and to be able to take on that risk. And it's turning into a risk that, you know, you're not going to be able to make uh, you're not going to be able to make a calculated risk because I think the old dynamic of work is really going away. The old mm-hmm. dynamic of like, I'm going to get set up at this company and I'm going to get the perks and benefits and 401k and all these things. Uh, and I'm going to work there five days a week, even if my value is only, you know, I, I can contribute most of my value in one or two days a week, like you're describing. Um, you know, I, I think that dynamic is sort of just going away and that, you know, people should be prepared to use your skill set widely and to be able to apply it to a number of different places. I don't think this is the kind of situation where, you know, you can just work for one company and retire anymore. You have to be willing to work for a number of different entities and, and apply your skill set. And, um, and one of the things that you mentioned there with the, you know, sort of everyone forced to stay at home in a way it's what's interesting to me is how your home is your office now. Right. So you're no longer Even confined. Full-time people. Yeah. Even full-time people, you're not confined physically 
to one office building or one, you know, corner office or whatever, you can actually apply your skill set from your home office to a variety of different organizations. So it sort of just gives you that liberty and that freedom, and that flexibility, like you said, to, uh, to really maximize on your skills. And honestly, like you said it yourself, it's sort of like one of those 80, 20 rules where you can apply most of, let's say you're one of these people that, you know, one of these executives that can go help different organizations, you can probably give them 80% of your talent, skill, guidance, knowledge, um, and expertise in 20% of the time that you would normally do in a corporate sort of legacy type of career. And so if anything, you can kind of, you could work three or four jobs at once, you know, have multiple clients at once, multiple clients at once. um, And, you know, you can see your income change in direct proportion to that. It's essentially turning, you know, the economy is much more slanted now towards uh, really rewarding people to be solopreneurs, reward people for essentially taking like the contractor lifestyle instead of being a stable W2. But I think in such unstable times, uh, another thing that you mentioned, people are very concerned about the way that things are going between the pandemic, between riots and political forces and things. Uh, I would argue it's in your best nature to be as fluid and dynamic and flexible as possible because rigid structures are just not as reliable as they used to be. Right. That's a, it's a very fair point. You know, people think of fractionally going independent as a riskier choice. And in in the short term, it definitely is a riskier choice. Um, But, you know, what, what, what that means is if the problems with full-time though, are that number one, you are putting all your eggs in one basket. So if things don't work out there, um, then you actually lose a hundred percent of your income. Whereas if you, once you've built up a practice, if you have two, three, four clients and you lose one, you know, it's, you're already doing business development anyway. So it, it, it's easier to replace and you're only losing 20, 30% of your revenue rather than, uh, you know, rather than all of it as you do with a, with a full-time employer. I mean, other issues that make it more risky is that when people get up in salary at a higher level at a company full-time, some people describe it as having like a target on your back because you are one of the highest costs of that company. Um, and so that puts you even at a, at a higher risk. Even the fractional development itself puts more of a pressure on the full-time roles and makes fewer of them available because if you can, I mean, because if more and more people are finding those roles fractional, at least as long as that makes sense, then it's delaying the time that they're going to hire someone full-time for that role. So there's just fewer of those roles available. So the harder to get at the higher cost point, it's more risky because you have a target on your back because of the expense to the business. And, uh, you know, and, and it's a hundred percent of your eggs in one basket. So it's, uh, you know, so those are the, those, those are the negatives. Uh, you know, those are the negatives on that side. Yeah. So short-term, you know, it's taking a risk going out on your own and maybe sacrificing some of those, W2 corporate comforts that you're used to, but long-term looking at the trends and the way that things are going, um, you know, you're probably much better off uh, leaping out into that world and, and preparing for sort of the future of this type of work and, you know, planting those seeds and watching them grow uh, rather than just sitting around waiting for something to happen to you and waiting for, uh, you know, the finance team to look at the books and keep wondering why we're paying so much for this one role. Uh, right or what have you? The yeah the, yeah the only thing I would I would add is as I would say that there is there is something to be said for a lot of businesses to have somebody 
that's 100% eating, sleeping, and breathing their company. Absolutely, yes. Which you don't have with a fractional. Yes. And, you know, so if if I can help, like I'm a fractional COO, fractional integrator, right? I, I have a... My, I have the fractional leadership business where I'm referring vetted fractional leaders to businesses in marketing, sales, operations, finance, and technology. But I also have a fractional CO, fractional COO firm of my own called Wolf's Edge Consulting. And I serve clients. I have a couple other fractional integrators that serve clients. And um, you know, our, our goal as, a, as fractional COOs is to help them scale to the point where they, you know, where we could work ourselves out of the job. And get them to the point where they're scaled big enough where they can afford that experienced person, that person that they need that they couldn't afford before, right? When they, when yes. they retain me or when they retain somebody from my firm. But you know, later on, uh, when we've gotten them to scale after one or two years, let's say we've gotten them big enough, they can afford that kind of person now. Then if they can get that kind of person, it is it is a definite benefit, right? Because you have somebody that's there all the time, they know everything that's happening in the business in the weeds, not just at a high level. And they're eating, sleeping, and drinking, and breathing the, the business, and you know there, there you know there is there, there is a lot to be said for that. And so Certainly. you know I don't want to give the impression that I'm thinking like oh this should replace all full time employment. I definitely view it as a as a bridge measure or as a as a way of you know that, that every successful maybe not every but most successful fractional leadership engagements should end in working themselves out of the job. That's what we consider success is that we get you big enough that you outgrow us. That's the goal. Yeah. I think you make a really good point there. Uh, You know, there's definitely nothing, there's nothing better than, you know, a full executive team that is fully bought in, eat, sleep, drink, whatever, like all day, all the time is focused on one entity and growing one company. I think it's impossible to replace the the focus that you get out of that. But like you said, it's, it's a bridge to getting there, especially if you know, you're that entrepreneur trying to grow the business. Maybe you're not sure if that hire is the right move and sort of going that conventional route of like, okay, I need to make a big compensation package. And uh, you know, just to, you know, you might spend hundreds of thousands of dollars before you figure out that that wasn't a good fit for your organization. Um, so it's sort of giving that flexibility to get to the point where you can't afford the luxury of having the best talent locked in, in a way that it's, you know, creating the value that you need to sustain. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So tell me, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to me as well with, uh, the direction that you've gone is sort of taking it meta and going from, you know, fulfilling this role as a fractional COO to, uh, you know, t- taking a step back and seeing how this is a, uh, this is a common occurrence in the marketplace. It's something there's a gap that needs to be filled and building an entity around helping other, you know, people is similar to your position, you know, do that with other companies. So where, where did that idea come from? Where did that stem from and, and how has it been going so far? Uh, it is going great. We launched the business about four months ago, Fractional Leadership. Um, honestly, it was inspired by the by the book. Like, I, I guess, you know, I don't know. It's like, I hate waste. I hate waste. Sure. So I think like, I'm writing this book. I'm going to promote it, get people to read it. Okay, then what? Like, like well, I don't know. What am I doing to make anything better? Like, what? what's, where's all that energy? Like, okay, people understand it better. They get some good tips on, manually 
finding a bunch, you know, fractional leaders like exactly how they are today. Like, I don't know, it just seemed to me like a like a waste of energy to do this book to promote it. Like, like, and then what? Like, how am I gonna how am I gonna make people? It just felt like a it would be a waste. Like, if I'm gonna help people understand this better, or know what to do, but then I don't know. It's it's so hard. Like, because you, what happens is like, look, I've found I've hired fractional leaders of various types, marketing, sales. COOs, CTOs, like I've hired these things for my clients and with my clients as part of our projects and things that we needed to get done. Um, obviously, as a fractional COO or fractional integrator, I've tried to get clients. So I've seen it from both sides of the coin. And it's just a long manual process. Like if, if, if you want a fractional CFO, let's say for your business, then you, you, know, you go, you Google fractional CFO. Right. Well, I mean, number one issue is because there's no centralization and there's no common terminology that anybody uses. You're not going to, you're not going to find the, C, the fractional CFO firms that call it outsourced CFO. You're not going to find the ones that call it CFO as a service. You're not going to find the ones that call it finance as a service. Like there's just, there's just no common terminology, you know? And, and so I mean, that's one issue. The other issue is like you, you sit, you know, you're going to sit there with, you can sit there with like a with a notebook. I don't, not everybody's here on video, maybe, but like you can sit there with a notebook and you know and write down. Okay, you know Bob here is uh, you know I don't know like you know does does he have experience with with tech companies or does he have experience? I'm a healthcare company. Does he have experience with Medicaid billing? Like you know for as a finance leader, I don't know whatever. I have whatever needs I have, and not everybody lists everything on LinkedIn or or their website. And so you go through, it's a very manual process. Some information is there, some information is not there. You get it about some people, you don't get it about others. So you end up just getting in a million phone calls or Zoom calls or whatever. And you end up, what I just call it, is you just end up kissing a lot of frogs until you, know, you finally find one turns into a prince, right? Mm -hmm. Is that it's just very manual and you have to have a lot of patience. And as a famous meme once said, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> like you can't, you can't like, nobody has time for that. So like, I, you know, so I basically was like, you know, what would be a great solution for this? I'm teaching people like what fractional leadership it is, what a good benefit is, how to figure out if it actually is for you, or maybe if it's not a right fit for you, how to find the right person, you know, how it works. But, you know, but, you know, if you, if you want to just make it easier and skip straight to the finalists, it's like, Hey, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm looking for. I just, you know, I just said on the site, I created a quick form. You fill out one quick form. It's like, you just, you know, you explain, you know, about a little bit about your company, how many employees, what's your revenue, what does your leadership team look like? You know, what are your main challenges? What kind of fractional leader do you need? You know, and just certain things about what they might need, what kind of industry experience, what kind of company size experience, et cetera. And then, uh, and then, um, and then we, you know, I put together a vetted group of dozens and dozens of fractional executives, some, some solo practitioners, some firms, depending on whatever the right fit is for everybody in all of those areas, marketing, sales, finance, operations, technology. And, uh, and we check the references, we profile them, we interview them for core values. So we do all this stuff before they get in the network. And once they're in the network and somebody comes in, you make a request, they make a referral, we send you two to three vetted referrals within two to three days. And then I just forgot. the hope is that, you know, your finalists are one of those two to three that we send you because we've already like done all that homework and all that stuff that you'd be doing on a notepad 
you know, in your office and, and staying up late when you already have so much to do and so many fires to put out with the business every day. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, that, that's what it came about because I was just, it just felt like a waste to do all this education, spread the knowledge about this tool, this model of fractional leadership, and then just leave everybody exactly where they are now with a very difficult time if they want to do it. I understand. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Um, and it's like, you've already gone down this road of sort of trying to define these terms and, uh, and create this, uh, ecosystem. So why not take it to the next level and, and implement it yourself? Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned one thing that caught my, uh, attention, which was, uh, digging into someone's core values. So is that part of the matching process, matching sort of when you're looking at, because there's kind of two ends to this, you, you have your talent pool that you're building, and then you have your client base, which is trying to access your talent pool. How do you determine the match and, and how often are those matches? Uh, you know, does it work and are you using core values uh, to help right. guide those decisions? It's a great question. The, um, I'm, actually, I'm actually not using core values in the matching. I use it for something else, but it's, uh, I mean, it, it's a good idea. Like, I just don't feel... Like I know enough about it, or I don't know a way to, to do that scientifically enough to prejudge about a core values fit, which I, I talk in the book about how important that is that it has to be a core values fit and communication styles, work styles, all kinds of things like that. I, I do leave it up to the business owner and the fractional executive to kind of figure that out for themselves. I don't actually do that as part of the um, as part of the matching process, but what I do use it for is whether they get into the network to begin with. As I look at what's my core values, like what kind of people do I feel comfortable referring to others? You know, it's not about the specific match with the business owner because that is a whole separate sub question that's critical. Yeah. But I, I don't actually, I, I kind of abdicate that. I don't deal with that question. But you know, what I say is that for this fractional leadership community, for the kind of people I feel good working with as as the fractional leadership part of the community. Because as you said, there's the demand side, which is the business owners, and then there's the supply side, the fractional leaders, solo practitioners, and firms. And what I say is that for the fractional leader side and the, that community, it has to be people that I feel good about working with. I feel good about referring to others, separate from their compatibility with the business owner. So the number one core value that I identify, and I actually have a couple of people, a couple of great people, them, David Boffman and Kristen McGar, right now are actually helping me do the screening interviews with all the fractional leaders who are applying to join the network. So it's not just me. I actually have three of us doing it. We have a process we follow. And the first thing we talk about is our number one core value, which is abundance mindedness. Because I don't want people, because I don't want people that I'm referring to others or, or working with each other in my group who are, who are kind of like looking slant eyed at the person next to them in the community. Right. I want everybody to feel like we are just at the tip of the iceberg of this whole industry. Like it is just now starting to explode and there's so far to go still. I would say, you know, still maybe, I still think 50, less than 50% of business owners are really even think of this, like, hey, you can get a part-time CFO, or you can get a part-time CMO or COO. Like, I would say less than 50%, 50% of people, I would think even like truly actually think of that as actually a thing that one can do. As King George said in Hamilton, like, I didn't know that was a thing that a person could do. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just strange for most people. So that's the idea of the book and the blog and the podcast and, 
you know, is, is in, these, in this podcast also is this interview today is to educate people, to change that, to, to make people aware that this is a thing. And <clears throat> um, so there's just so, so far that we still have to go. And I want people who believe that like, there is enough here for all of us, like a, in a rising tide lifts all boats. If this client's not a perfect match for me, I'd rather refer it to a competitor. And I feel like, you know, I want people who feel that the better we all do, then the better we'll all do. Because if you have a good, ex- you, Patrick, have a good experience with the fractional CFO that you hire out in California and, you know, whatever, somebody out here on the East Coast has a good experience with the fractional CFO that they hire, two completely different companies, then they're all going to talk to their friends and their friends are going to talk to friends and they're going to all hear about it. And it's either going to be what a disaster that was, like if it doesn't go well, or it's going to be like, wow, like I can't believe like, oh, I didn't have to hire somebody for $300,000 and they like fixed up all my books and I got so strategic and they pointed out every month there's like a new issue I wasn't even aware of that they're like, cluing me into and then we do things differently and they just you know and then their friends hear about it and people are mobile they hear about it all over the country and that's going to help me in new york get a client more easily because of the because of someone's because of your good experience in california with your cfo like i want people that believe that the better we all do the better we will all do and collaboration over competition this woman named natalie frank just wrote a book called built to belong all about this concept and And um, so, <clears throat> yeah, I'm looking for people that want to want to refer to their competitors. If people are asking in a peer advisory group that we're putting together about some issue and it's another, and I'm a CMO firm and some other CMO firm asks a question, then I'll help them. I'll do something that helps them. Yes, could it be that once in a while we might be head to head talking to the same client? Yeah, once in a while that will happen. But there's more than enough to go around. And if they don't go with me, it's because it wasn't a good. I want people who, who look at it that if it didn't go to me, it's because I wasn't the best fit for that particular client. And I'll, I'll get the next client. And I don't know, that's the kind of people I want in the group or people who show ownership, people who do the right thing, even when they lose clients, even if they lose money, uh, referring to competitors, getting ahead of issues if they make a mistake, getting out of it. I mean, getting ahead of it, making it known to their client, addressing it, dealing with it. Getting entering the danger, getting ahead of issues, not hoping no one notices. These are the kind of people that I want to work with and I want in my network. So that's what I meant when I said screening for core values. And, and we have, I don't know, we've gotten over 100 applicants. I think we have maybe 60 people in the network so far and a bunch of others that are in process and over a dozen that we've rejected. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's, you know, we want people that we could feel good about referring to clients. It's not going to help us or anybody else if people are like, "What was that? What was that about?" <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's sort of like your your reputation being able to provide the right fit is based off of you know how how many success stories can you get going, especially if uh, you know those wins keep stacking up. And uh, cool. it really um, got my attention when you said that the number one core value you're looking for is abundance mindedness, which is yeah. uh, very interesting. Cause it's a, you know, it's a frame that I like to use in day-to-day life, you know, not thinking, uh, you know, not thinking in a scarce way or, you know, it's cause with scarcity comes fear and with fear comes, you know, bad decisions and bad, you know, uh, to the dark side. Yeah. It's just bad energy overall. Right. So, uh, choosing that abundantness mindset is, is huge. Um, really, I, I don't think I would want anyone in my organization that, uh, is 
coming from a direct scarce mindset, like it just would not fit well with us. Um, what are some of those other characteristics that, uh, you know, you use to vet people out? Because I think this, this is sort the of core values, you mean? Yeah. So yeah. Other uh, core values to vet people out. Cause I think this is for someone who's sort of looking from the outside, maybe they have no experience uh, in this world whatsoever and understanding like, what are those characters, what are those core values that actually make you a better opportunity to work with an existing organization or to be able to, you know, sort of fit into a group in a positive way. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, the other two are ownership and doing the right thing for for us right now. So, you know, ownership again is, is that, that attribute of, of, uh, of like getting ahead of it. Actually, I'll give an example of, of how I tried to exhibit the attribute of ownership um, in, uh, in, uh, in something bad that happened, like when we were first doing fractional leadership. So we had, uh, you know, like any startup, like, you know, I put it on paper what the process should be, and we like, we try to set it up, but then, you know, actually doing it, you know, never, it's never exactly how you think it should be. So I expect that in advance, there's going to be kinks, there's going to be bugs, it's not going to, you know, we're going to, there's going to be stuff we have to figure out. It's not going to work out hundred percent. Right. So we had, we had one very large firm that was joining the network, was applied to join the network. It was great that they wanted to apply and I, I knew them, they're good people. And in the reference check, so we do reference checking. We talk to every, whether it's a firm or individual, we talk to three clients directly that we talk to them. So we can get a director of reference for three clients so that we could say, Okay, we have independent verification. This, this guy, this gal, these people have served at, you know, at least three clients that we've talked to. They've actually served. It was real life. They really did it. They were happy with them and what you know, at a basic level. Or if they had any issues, that they handled it well. And uh, and so so we we did this process. And I don't know, there was some like there was like con- just the the way that we set up the emails and the templates, it was just some confusing language that just made us look unprofessional. Um, and like we didn't like or like we didn't communicate with the firm properly or we gave wrong information or whatever it was. It was like a, a couple of bits of information that just made us look bad and made us look disorganized or uh, and of course that reflects on the people who said, hey, contact these people as a reference. So that makes them look bad to their own client. Right. Yes. If we do something that looks bad, it reflects badly on them. And that's horrible. So I'm sorry, just speaking from the heart there. Like I, I don't I don't want that. So so you know, so you know, we just immediately kicked into gear and I reached out to we reached out to the reached out to the members of the firm, you know, talked about it, emailed the clients. I think I got on call, I think I ended up doing a, a reference or two on the phone with a couple of the clients, even though it was going to be, it might not have even been me, but like I ended up doing it. Like I talked to the clients. I talked to the, I talked to the people at the firm. I talked to everybody. I sent like long emails, lots of apologies. Like, I just like, I don't know. Instead of just like moving on and like, Oh, we'll get it on the next one. Like, I don't know. I just, I want people who take ownership. Like I made a, like I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Like we made a mistake. We're like, we're figuring out why this happened. We're changing our process so that it won't happen in the future. In the meantime, there's no excuse. We apologize. Let, you know, let me know what I could do to make it right. I'll, you know, happy to talk it over with you. Whatever it is, like, let me know what, what I could do to make it right. I want to make this right. 
just if like if you get ahead of it, like I don't think we suffered anything from all those bad mistakes that were made that day because people saw like, okay, they had ownership, like they like they made a mistake, but they they took they took responsibility for it. They didn't skirt it. They didn't just like not return my calls because they were embarrassed or whatever people don't return calls or emails. Like, they, you know, we got, I want people that get ahead of the, they get ahead of issues that are upfront about things that, that admit mistakes, that they correct mistakes, that when they do make mistakes, they take responsibility for it and correct it for the future, not make justifications or excuses. Like, anyway, that's owner. I mean, whatever, a little bit about ownership. Yeah. It's like extreme ownership. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book uh, by Jocko Willink, but I just a- read it. I just finished reading it this week. Oh, fantastic. So great timing then. Yeah. I, I read that mind. one. Uh, I read that one this year and yeah, it's, it's that exact concept of taking extreme ownership over, you know, what you're doing. And, and like you said, you know, being able to, being able to do that and, you know, uh, really own your own mistakes, uh, actually, you know, can sometimes even lend credibility to outweigh whatever, you know, mistake or thing that you might've done, uh, if you're, you know, that direct about owning and trying to improve it, not letting it happen again. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I had a thing with a client yesterday. Yeah. Actually. I was in a meeting with a client. They're a wood flooring installer and they, 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 they mentioned a story that they're in the process now or last week or something of, of, of spending 20 to $30,000 ripping out and reinstalling some work because of a small defect. And they, they, what they ended up saying was that, you know, was that I, whatever the customer brought up the issue, whatever they figured it out, this is what they needed to do. And they did it right. They backed up their work. And so they said that the, the contractor, I guess, who brought them into the situation, uh, they basically said, you know what? I see how you guys take ownership and take responsibility of your work. Like I'm giving all of my future work to you. You're going to be the only wood flooring installer that I'm going to work with because they made a mistake. Yeah. That's what brought it about. They made a mistake, but then they, they took responsibility. They, they backed it up. They redid the work at their own expense because, you know, they just, we're not going to do work that we're not going to back up. And then they end up getting told by the person who they were working with that, that they're going to get all their business in the future. But yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's amazing how that works. I mean, we, we often look at it in my organization. We think, you know, like customer service doesn't start until something goes wrong. You know, it's not until that, uh, you know, if everything goes smooth, you know, there's, there's no, uh, like, that's all great. And the customer's happy and everything, but where you really make your, your lifelong clients, where you really get those five-star reviews is when something goes wrong. Uh, and you're able to amend that to the point where they see that you take your, uh, business seriously, you take every single client seriously, and that you all, will always over deliver, uh, when faced with those kinds of situations. And so right. it's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. So that's the, um, those are our three core values. I mean, we, we talk, that's the first thing. In fact, even in the calls that we do our screening calls with new applicants to the fractional leadership network, um, that's the first, that's the first thing on the agenda of every call is the fraction, um, excuse me, is the core values. values. Conversation. How do you, uh, so I've done on top of all my podcast interviews, I've interviewed probably probably a thousand or more people for different positions, mm-hmm. uh, sales positions, different positions within the organization. Talk to so many people to, and one of, one of my favorite things is the questions that you ask to try and get these results. Because if you just ask someone straight up, hey, uh, are you abundant mindedness? Do you, do you, or do you have abundant mindedness? Do you take extreme ownership of stuff? 
in an interview, there's like yes, this dynamic, dude. like, yes, absolutely. I'll do. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I do. <laughs> they're going to yes you to death. Um, and you know, you're not, you know, as the interviewer, you're also sort of in this position where like you're incentivized to hire, you know, you want to get the hire done. You want to get that task over with, you know, going through right. more rigorous interviewing process is not what you want to spend your time doing. So you just, right. you're sort of incentivized to just believe them and then say like, Hey, they said this and that in the interview, but as a skilled interviewer, you have to really dig below the surface and try to ask questions that get to the root of their mindset without them maybe even realizing what you're really trying to get out of them. Um, and I'm curious if you have any powerful questions that you use to try to uh, get to the, you know, the root of those core values and see if someone's really worth their, you know, if their answers are accurate or if they're really uh, honest about it. Right. So hundred percent. So I, I, I would say two things that I do uh, that I do in interviews is, and, you know, and it's important like anything else to processize it. So it's not just you, but it's like anybody, your organization who's interviewing people is doing the same thing. But the two things are this, like one is to create a core value speech, which is, and you can't do a core value speech if you don't have core values, first of all. So, you know, and core values are not something for marketing. Um, it's not a, I mean, I don't know what your readers or listeners are familiar with, but, you know, again, it's not a marketing tool. Core values are not necessarily going to be on your website. They could be core values that sound bad uh, to the outside world. That's fine. Um, they're things that are for you and your people and what define who fits in with your organization or who doesn't fit in with your organization. Um, you know, I give the example of a, of, a, of a company that's like insane hours and like crazy beast mode, right? That's like, yes. that's their personality. And that's anything else just annoys the freak out of them and they can't stand it. And, you know, but like, they, they, you know, they go to a marketing firm and they develop core values. They put it on their website, family friendly, you know, or like uh, work, work life flexibility or something like that, you know, is one of our core values. And then just BS. It's just simply BS. It's not your core value. Like, you know, and it doesn't matter if it looks bad, if it sounds bad, if you put beast mode as your core value, then, and you interview on that and you say, this is what it looks like. This is what people who don't fit in here look like, um, you know, <laughs> and so you do a core value speech where you say, okay, these are our three core values or however many there are. And here's, you know, let's say beast mode. It means you're staying here till four in the morning, if need be that you're, you know, that you're, I, I, I don't want to harp on that example, you know, or, uh, you know, or like, you know, you know, you, uh, you know, you talk about the core value of ownership and, you know, what that looks like. And, you know, you're bringing up your mistakes and, you know, never don't respond to an email. Even if you don't have an answer, tell them when you're going to get them the answer. And then you always have the answer by the time you tell them you're going to have the answer, whatever it is, two days later, whenever you say, and, you know, you paint a picture of it. So spend five minutes or less giving your core values speech. And just what, this is the first point I was going to say is watch their reaction. Are they looking like very somber and serious or are they like nodding? Like, Oh man, I've been waiting for this place. So you're just watching their face and yep. see if this resonates. Does this look like, are they like gulp? Gosh, you know, kill me now. You know, or like, what's their face saying to this? Do they look enthusiastic? Do they look energized by it? Do they look de-energized by what you're saying? And so you want to turn off and repel anybody who's not a good core values fit for you or for your organization. So that's the first 
piece. And then the second piece is to directly answer your question about what questions you ask. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but you ask behavioral-based questions, not do you have X, Y, and Z core value, but you ask behavior questions, example questions. You know, you're talking about, let's say, let's say extreme ownership. Let's say that's one of your company's sure. core values. So then you, you would say like, you know, tell me an example from the last few weeks when you like made a major mistake and like, you know, what you did about it. Or, or like a client, you know, like tell me a recent time that a client got really upset at you and then, and tell me what happened. And just like, cause if they don't, if they don't, if they don't actively exhibit that behavior in their daily life, because it's foreign to them, whatever, whatever it is, it's your core value. If it happens to be something that's foreign to them, not that they're not a good person, just a different company with different core values. It's where they belong. But like, if it's foreign to them, they're going to futz and fumble and, and like, and, and they'll come up with an example, but it's going to be kind of generic. But then, you know, the one who fits the core, who lives that core value that you asked about, they're going to be like, like I did with the example of the, uh, you know, example of the client and the references, like they're going to have a very specific example with a very specific set of stories and names. And they're going to tell you exactly what happened because they're thinking of a specific instance. It's not just like, generically it's like well usually when someone calls like no it's going to be something specific um, and so ask specific behavioral based questions that are keyed in or related to the core values so pick two or three of those to ask during an interview tell me a time when you know if, if customer obsession is your core value you know again when a customer w- was really upset you know or i don't know whatever and then tell me a time when that happened what happened and just do two or three of those and then i don't know i mean I hope that's helpful, but that that's yeah. that's the approach I would say is that first of all, you have to get clear about what your core values even are. Have a documented core value speech where everyone can give basically the same basic speech, watch the reaction, and then ask two to three behavioral-based questions keyed off of those core values to try to bring out whether they're BSing you or uh, or, or they really carry these things out on a regular basis in real life. Yeah, no, I think you nailed that. I mean, it reminds me of something I heard uh, once from like an Elon Musk practice when I guess he used to interview uh, all of the people that would get hired to SpaceX at one point. You know, you'd be doing okay. all the final early interviews. on, I assume. Yeah, early <laughs> like on. 2003 yeah. or something. Yeah, I don't think he could do that now, but uh, that's just my guess. But uh, I guess one 12, question, people or something. you know, what? Well, yeah, it's insane. Um, but I guess one of their core values was being able to be a problem solver. And okay. uh, one thing they would say is, you know, and this is obviously paraphrasing, but, you know, asking someone to tell you like, what's a problem that you ran into, you know, at your previous position or whatever, and how did you solve it? And uh, his philosophy, you know, as the interviewer is that anyone who's ever solved a problem uh, should be able to tell you in sort of excruciating details what that issue was and how they resolved it. Because there's you've never been able to, if you truly did solve the problem yourself, you'll be able to go into intense detail about it. Whereas if you're just kind of fudging it, if you're just uh, you know trying to answer the question, it's going to be a very general answer. It's not going to be something right. with uh, you know super specific. So right. uh, I think you sort of uh, you know it's a very sort of parallel philosophy there thinking, you know, like if you ask them about a time where there's extreme ownership and they're just kind of giving you, oh, well, customers call in, blah, 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 compared to our client, John Smith called in and, you know, his order was messed up. And so I reached out to the, you know, head of marketing, whatever, like, you know what I mean? Like if they can give right. you those, those the whole levels thing of detail. 
Right. Yeah. Then, you know, that's sort of how, you know, that they're, they, they're thinking in that direction. And just to take a step back also, like, I just love the core value sort of philosophy because it's, um, you know, I actually, you know, the term core value has like a little bit of corporate weight to it or something, but the idea of what you get out of it is, you know, you're discerning someone's mindset, which, uh, you know, I think goes back to, the direction of work in general and the direction of uh, sort of this corporate world is not so much on your credentials and your uh, you know, like what you can put on paper, but it's what's most important to find a fit and uh, and working with anybody is really about their mindset. And so if you can use core values as sort of a guiding post to discern, to determine where someone, how do they think that's a much better fit and much better, uh, opportunity to find a good fit than, you know, just reading what their resume says. Yeah, hundred percent. It's uh, it, it's definitely much harder. You know, we say that like when I'm working with clients that there's, there's a lot of kinds of issues that people have, but there's people issues and there's process issues, you know, we have a mm-hmm. bad process or bad systems, whatever, but the, the more foundational issue is when you have people issues, you can have the best processes in the world, the best systems, the best strategies, you're simply going to fail if you don't have the right people and the right people is defined as being people who fit your core values. Like if you need people who are industrious or have attention to detail or ownership or whatever it is that's important to you and every organization is going to be different. Maybe some people are in a more artistic field and they need people who are artistic. And it's just, you know, if someone's very mathematical, you know, this or engineering, like it's just not going to work. Yep. Uh, and, you know, and people have to be honest about, what their core values are, because that's what defines the right people. And you can have the best systems, the best technical, you know, they could have the Harvard resume, like you talk about with the resume, you can have the best resume in the world, you can have the best skills, even in real life for whatever the job is. But if you don't have the right qualities as a human being, or if the people don't have the right qualities as human beings, I think I'm going to say right. I mean, it's very specific to the organization. There's no one right thing that's, there's no one right kind of human being, right, for jobs, right? It's, it's uh, for teams in general, it's whatever those core values are for you. But without that, it doesn't matter what their resume is, what their skills are. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a disaster. I've, I've, I've been in companies where we've had the most productive people. They, you know, one person who could do more than three other people um, who we fired because they were not a core values fit. They were literally poisoning the organization and uh, you know, talking to people behind their back and backstep, you know, and like turning people against each other just because uh, that's what they do. Like, I don't know, whatever, that's their modus operandi. Sure. But, you know, is it hard? Is it painful? Like to, to lose somebody who's really, really, really good at their job. Sometimes uh, that happens. I mean, yes, but you know, if, if the only way you're going to succeed in the long term is if you make that change to somebody away from people who don't fit your core values and towards people who do Sometimes you have to hire two people and get them trained up before you can even let somebody go. Uh, but it's critical to do that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You can't have uh poisoning. The well is definitely the worst situation that can occur and has much more harmful ramifications than, you know, whatever productivity they may have. They're dragging yeah. other people down with them. Well, Ben, I could ask you questions all day long about your philosophy practices and so forth. And I find your business to be, you know, very interesting and sort of the mission that you're on here. Um, what is, is there, what's sort of the next move? What's, what's next with the organization? Where would you like to take it? Where would you like to see it go? 
Whew, that's a great question. I, 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 honestly, I want to take over the world. Okay, short term, the next five years. Uh, you know, I figure like this: if I, I want to make referrals of vetted fractional leaders to companies who need them. So I figure if the average company is a wide, wide range, you know, 1 million, 50 million, whatever different sizes. But I figure if the average companies that asks for a referral is 10 million and, you know, they, you know, we could refer to them a fractional executive, fractional leader who's a good fit for them and they bring them on. And then over the course of the first year, they could grow to just 25% over the first year with that person. Uh, you know, I figure if I could do a thousand of those over the next five years, um, that's, that's, you know, two, you know, two and a half million in growth of a thousand companies is $2.5 billion added to the economy that is, you know, added to the prosperity pie. We're talking about abundance mindedness, not scarcity mindedness. It doesn't have to come from anywhere. It's just new wealth creation for everybody. I believe that is thousands and thousands of jobs created and maybe freelancers hired. Mm-hmm. And I've lived there's thousands and thousands of people that are getting work. There's business owners who are fulfilling their dreams, living a better lifestyle, uh, you know, not stressed and miserable because they're stuck in a rut or hitting their head against the ceiling in their business, but actually achieving their dreams. Uh, I believe there's dreams fulfilled, billions of dollars of wealth that could be created, thousands at least of jobs that could be created. And and, and, and work for other kinds of freelancers. Um, I think that that would make a huge difference in the world. And uh, that's, that's, that's at least a little bit of the next move of what I see in the future. Incredible. Well, I, I love that vision. I love the uh, sort of the, I can tell you, you have, uh, you know, you really, your heart in this to, to see the growth and see the change and the positive effect of what you're doing. So I love that as well. Um, Thank you, Ben, for all the time today. I'm really excited to see where this business goes. And, uh, you know, I hope people pick up a copy of Fractional Leadership and check it out. It's on Amazon. It's get it prime delivered. Ben, is there uh, anywhere we should direct people online to find your, your content? Sure. I mean, yeah, definitely check out Amazon, Fractional Leadership, Landing Executive Talent you thought was out of reach. And if you want to get in touch with me or find out more about Fractional Leadership besides the book, um, the website is fractionalleadership.io, not .com, fractionalleadership.io. Excellent. Well, thank you again. I uh, really appreciate your time and, and wish you best of luck in the future. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better 
experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.